This is Application Paranoia, Season 3, Episode 5. So welcome again to Application Paranoia, a podcast dedicated to application security, DevSecOps, and AppScan. I'm Colin Bell. Joining me, as always, are my dapper colleagues, Rob Cuddy and Chris Stewart. And in this episode, um, we're very excited that later we're also going to be talking to Rick Bajira. Um, and he's a, Rick is an expert on agile coaching and training. You're going to get a lot of insight around agile processes. Look yep. forward to talking. Um, so, Rob, how are you? Hey, I'm, I'm doing great. I uh, I have a college graduate now, so that's pretty exciting. Um, we Woo! just had that happen a few uh, few weeks ago. Uh, and she got a job. How do you achieve that? Because I'm, 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 I'm struggling I think you just that. Uh, you just keep breathing and encouraging, right? So <laughs> just put the head down and, and keep going. Um, she did great. You know, graduated mm-hmm. um, magna cum laude, which was pretty awesome as well. And uh, what was really fun was we were packing her up and moving her out. Um, and the day we were doing that, she had a second interview for a place. Um, and so we get everything packed up. She you know, does her interview. And then we drove across the desert. And uh, when we got home the, the next day, they offered her a job. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, of course, the, the job is in, uh, is, is in Arizona. And so <laughs> you know, we had moved all the way back um, and thankfully they're going to let it start remote for several months so that uh, we don't have to move her right back uh, to Phoenix. Cause that would have been a little fun. Um, but yeah, so there's that kind of stuff going on and you know, cool. all kinds of other good stuff. So, but that, that was very exciting. And uh, not sure if you are aware of this, but Chris is probably aware that, uh, you know, here in the U S this is primary season in a lot of States. So there's a lot of elections going on and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, you know, determining who's going to run for things in the fall and our good friend, Mike Owens, who you guys may remember, we talked to about election security. Uh, he was running for secretary of state in Georgia and he finished third in the state and just narrowly missed making a runoff uh, for that office in the fall. But he had a really good showing um, winning, I think, something like 23 or 24 counties uh, in the southern part of the state. So um, he's starting to get much better known and had a really good uh, campaign. And so uh, excited for him. Just wanted to congratulate him on his, uh, you know, he would have liked to have gotten into the runoff but uh, it was a great result for him and we're excited to see what the future holds for him yeah well pity we couldn't vote for him huh (laughs) i I, unfortunately living in california cannot vote for georgia primaries but you know i certainly encouraged people and use social media to try to push that um you know we need a guy like that in office who cares about election integrity and voting rights and things like that so chris how are you Oh, you know, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. The weather's turning a little bit for us. It went from cold to hot to cold to hot. So <laughs> we're in the middle of a middling time right now. Hopefully it gets nice and hot soon. Get out there and enjoy the sun. Get some exercise. So has summer began there yet? Uh, well, so. officially, no. Um, but unofficially for me, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's shorts and t-shirts uh, weather for us. Get the barbecue out, yeah. No, anything above 60 degrees. <laughs> Goodbye jacket. <laughs> well, whatever that is in Celsius for everybody else. <laughs> good, that's yes, good. So I figured I'd give you another stream work colleague name. Woo-hoo. We've done a few. Oh, let's go. Okay. 
So, so this this week's one is wheelbarrow. Get called a wheelbarrow. Oh, you have to be carried. That's got to be it. Yeah. But we had that already. That was like no, the no, lantern. No, no, that's a lantern. A lantern. Yeah, right. Right. And then, um, <laughs> God, what was the other one? Um, cordless was last. Cordless. That's right. Yeah. All right. So, full of crap. Charges all night and he works yeah. for three hours. Yeah. Full of crap is my next guess. <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's full of junk or heavy yeah. laden stuff like that. Um, only works when they are pushed. When they're pushed, yeah. There's <laughs> one wheel. Yep, that's makes sense. Oh, so I'm sure, look, I know lots of people only work when they're pushed. And yeah, and then they dump everything out on somebody <laughs> else. Well, there you go. You, you can add to it as well. Yes. <laughs> oh, we've, we've made the wheelbarrow an even better one. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Wow. Do you know any wheelbarrows? So I, I, I'll have. I think for next month I'll try and come up with one which is um, at least something you want to be. Yeah, <laughs> that would be good. Exactly. It'll be something bad like pile of poop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what happens yeah, if you're great. carrying a cordless phone and a lantern while you're pushing a wheelbarrow? I know. Well, what happens if you've got your lantern in your wheelbarrow? You just made some bad hiring decisions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you need to re rethink your HR department in that yeah. instance. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if the podcast doesn't work out, we can go over to Australia and run a recruiting firm <laughs> called Wheelbarrows, Lanterns, and Cordless, right? I, I'm i a big cycling fan, right? And so I, you know, keep an eye on the Tour de France every year. Um, there's usually a main stage on my, on my birthday, which happens to be in July um, and stuff like that. And so I'm always impressed by these guys and what they're they're able to do. Um, you know, cause I'll, I'll go ride a couple hours, 30 miles or so, and I'm gassed and exhausted. These guys are usually covering, you know, close to a couple hundred kilometers in a day and climbing thousands of meters. Um, but it always strikes me as odd that the Tour de France typically starts outside of France. And this year, the first two stages are in Denmark. <laughs> and at, at the second stage, I was looking at this yesterday and it's crossing this bridge that goes over the, um, the Great Belt or the Austrian Den and ends in uh, Nyborg in Denmark. Um, I was just imagining what this is going to be like because it's essentially a single lane bridge each way. And you know, over this long body of water and like, this is going to be insane. So, <laughs> so how do they get to the next stage? Does it start yeah. in the same place or yeah. how does that all work? Do they like carry their bikes to wherever they got to go? Pack yeah, it up go on, like trains and planes and stuff like that. <laughs> Can you imagine hundreds of cyclists all being like, damn it. I have to wait in line Yeah, for all the exactly. other guys. I should have been <laughs> getting exactly. on their little public transportation buses to get to the next stage. And yeah. Well, and then you have all the team cars and, and the other button, all the extra equipment that follows yeah. them around, like, oh, it's a logistical can I, nightmare. Can I, borrow, can I please borrow an air pump? My tire is low. I'm dying here. <laughs> exactly. and there's enough of you. You should have one. Yeah. Well, you know, today it's uh, it's CO2 cartridges like they use for oh, nice. and stuff like that. So this thing's, yeah. You, so so in, in, in 1998, the Tour de France started in Ireland mm -hmm. and they had and it was on the back of um, Stephen Roach, who's a really famous um, cyclist from very near where I'm living in, in, in County Tipperary, but that's not, just over the border from Waterford. And they did one they did one segment in Dublin where it was a time trial, and then they rode down. They, they the next segment started in Waterford, and then they rode to Cork, 
Oh, wow. Um, but they didn't just go the normal way. They decided they'd cross every single bridge over the local <laughs> river and cause absolute chaos. You know, so, um, so you couldn't get nice. in, you couldn't get into Waterford effectively the whole day because yeah. you're right, Rob. There's so much. It's like a circus. The, the cars, yeah. the sponsors, everything that goes with it. Now, now, did you go get a big Irish flag and put it on like a cape and run nest to the bikes while they were going over the bridges? <laughs> yeah, so streaking through the Tour de France. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a part of Waterford where there's a fairly steep, well, not steep, it's, it's, it's decent gradient. On, so I figured we'd go down there and look at them and say, well, you know, at least, at least this would be interesting. And they're just cruising along chatting to each other, you know, there's no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> just go past. I think yeah, I'm going to have 50 kilometers an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, was, it was interesting because it, I, I remember it well because it was, it was actually the 1998 World Cup final in France was on the same weekend as well. Mm. Was, oh, right. It was, it was a crazy, so much going on. It's definitely worth seeing. Now, I guess that's why they come out of the country is so we could spread the love. <laughs> I'd like to submit Manchester, New Hampshire as a possible leg in the Tour de France for the future for anybody who's in charge of that but sort of thing. Just to it might be a bit difficult to do the next thing. <laughs> well, our roads may not be the best, but hey, you know, it's okay. Just do it anyway. We'll close down Elm Street. It'll be great. Yeah. Everyone's got an Elm Street. <laughs> yeah. Everyone. And a Main Street. street. Yeah, right. Main Street, yep. Exactly. No, no go down. Is it the Elm Street? I don't think so, but it might be. <laughs> so I thought we'd continue our um, discussion on business business trends. And we're gonna we're gonna go to one which I know you love, Chris. So then you, you're going to be our expert on this. So, um, so artificial intelligence progressing towards responsiveness. Um, so so the, the the theory here is in order for businesses to harness AI's full potential, workers with little or no experience in computer science need to be able to use uh, and improve the, their operating efficiency. So, I guess the premise here is that AI needs to reach at the point where it's easy. It's not this mathematical formula, but it's something that's very easy to use for all. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think that's pretty close to true. The The problem, or at least one of the big problems I see with AI is you've got data scientists that know a ton about how to build a model mm -hmm. and how to extract features and how to do you know, all that nonsense. And then you've got the industry experts that know what people look at and what people key on and what people care about <clears throat> in whatever industry it might be. How do you marry those two? Like the people that know the data and then the people that know how to do something with the data are typically not the same person. Um, one of the, the coolest things I ever read about, um, I'm not going to call out the company, but I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, people have heard about this, but they use something called a data lake where just regular people can go in and try different things, I guess you could say, feed them into a model. And it's all, it's all arbitrage. It's all just UI clicking through, uh, through things um, where they expose this possibility of building up these dynamic models to say, well, what could be a prediction for this or that, whatever it might be. And I thought that was the coolest idea um, applying the data lake. Now, one of the, one of the best books I read though, kind of goes into some cautionary tales 
on what can happen or what bad stuff can happen with AI when it's kind of harnessing the data incorrectly, or in some cases, in a rather racist way, um, you could say, and believe it or not, machines can be racist, depending mm -hmm. on how you feed the data in. But the book is called Weapons of Math Destruction. It's a hell of a read. <laughs> I recommend anybody take a peek at it. And uh, the author goes into quite a bit of detail on how the machines can be taught bad information and that bad information can then make completely correct predictions based on the bad information. And then we use that to influence policy decisions in business or in government or in policing or in fire or whatever the case may be, whatever industry it might be. Um, so it's really the marrying of the two specialties, the people that know the data and the people that know what to do with it. Uh, how do you marry those two together to get them to work correctly together and not build a weapon of math destruction? <laughs> right. It's the best name for a book ever. I don't care who you are. <laughs> it's the best. It would it would work it would work in the UK though, that name. Because they don't say math, they say maths. Maths. Weapon of maths destruction. Maths destruction. There's only the one, one really. <laughs> There's not multiple maths. There are. <laughs> yes. No, AI is absolutely astronomically important to any business that wants to make anything happen with any amount of data. Like the return on invest, even for rudimentary applications, is like a hundred to one. It's not even close. Like you have to invest in it. There's, there's just not even a choice. So know, it's going to take over our world pretty soon. Spin it, spin it back to our world a little bit. I mean, we, and I know you were principally behind it. A lot of AI, machine learning. I know there's differences. I think it's worth clarifying what they are. Yeah. But you did a lot. You did a lot with, I guess what we call IFA, Intelligent Finding Analytics. And I know we're adapting that even further. Is Are you seeing huge improvements in that space to make things even better? Oh my gosh, the democratization of interacting with a model or building a model, it's just so much better now. Just regular people can figure out how to get the data put into the model. Like regular programmers, I should say. You don't necessarily even have to be a data scientist. It's just gotten so easy. Uh, I mean, I, I, for those of you out there that are using Python, there's a few other packages out there, you know, Torch or <clears throat> neural nets, if you wanted to try that with TensorFlow, even the regular models or the non, you know, neural net models are fantastic. And in many cases can outperform neural nets in some applications. So it's, it's just such an easy, easy thing to do. Now, the hard part is the data. How do you figure out what to do with the data? How do you pick the model? How do you you know, get the overfitting, underfitting, all that nonsense that goes into machine learning figured out. Um, it's not, it's just not as hard as it used to be. Back in the day in the 60s, when this stuff was invented, you had to write the code for your model. There was no libraries or packages that made it all easy. It was, you know, relegated to the select few who knew how to write the code for the model. And you can even write the code for your model now. There's books that walk you through how to build a neural net. You don't have to do that anymore. You just use what somebody else built and say, hey, you know, this will work. I mean, this these things have been around for a long, long time. We're talking 60s for crying out loud. And commuting power has finally caught up to be able to handle some of the calculations needed to make these predictions. It's it's fantastic time to be alive. I can say that. Yeah. Yeah. And we just want to confirm that Chris was not around in the 60s. I was not. <laughs> <laughs> but I was but shocked yeah. to learn that too. It's like, holy cow, this thing is that old? That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, you think about some of the work that we've done with students and how easy it was to involve them in some of these things and, oh and God, get them so easy. thinking about it, right? So there's there's some of that really cool stuff. I, I wonder, you know, I, I think about this in, in kind of the intersection with the low-code, no-code trend, 
you know, and where you're having a lot of these kinds of decisions being made and, you know, backend calculations and things like that. So, you know, we're, we're moving away from the days of, of just kind of simple form design and surveys and, you know, hello world type examples um, with these applications. We're really starting to see some sophistication now in these low code, no code platforms. And I think it's all because, you know, AI and machine learning are starting to intersect that space. Yeah, it's almost certain that regular programmers today are going to be the COBOL programmers of, of days gone by, where mm. most people just know how to interact with those systems. They speak machine learning, if you will, like they know how to describe to the machine in an appropriate way to get the UI they want, which they already have tools out there that can do that. They can convert speech to, to UIs or code or whatever. And those people will be the programmers of the future. And the, the, the precious few that still know how to actually code in C or whatever language is the backdrop of these will be paid, you know, the stupid amount of money, work four days a week and, or four, four days a year and get paid for it because they're the only ones who know it still. Very similar to COBOL these days. Like there's hardly anybody that knows that language anymore. And that's right. it's not going to be any different in the future. AI's <laughs> taking it all over. It will. <laughs> Colin's like, maybe I was around in the same. <laughs> yeah, punch card programmers and assembly language programmers. Like, you still need those people. You still have applications in, in certain areas where that's required, but you don't need them as yeah. much as you used to. So you get specialties. You get, you know, like the neurosurgeons of the, the programming world is what they're going to end up being. And then everybody else will just be, you know, talking to their machine all day which is going to be weird to see, but <laughs> you imagine a cubicle farm where everyone's just tucky-tucky. <laughs> yeah. It's a long way from the stone tablet and chisel days. Of the <laughs> what, can we, what can we expect around the things that, that we're working on in, that, in this space? What, what, yeah. what, what, are we, what are you able to adapt into application security. Oh my this. gosh, there's IFA and, and what we did with, with our markup or security information, ICA is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many areas in I, uh, application security that can be investigated in ML or AI, which AI doesn't really exist. Um, they call it that, but it's really machine learning through and through. There's not actually any artificial intelligence out there unless, you know, some nation state or whatnot has built their little robot. Um, but yeah, for us, it's it's those two big applications. Um, I don't necessarily want to go into too many more areas, but can you imagine if you could scan any piece of code and just automatically produce findings for it versus suspect areas? Like that's that's pretty wild thought. That's something that I think would be a huge huge benefit to you know zero day or zero zero application of the code being able to figure out whether or not it's Java or Fortran or Dart or whatever have you this might be a suspicious area of code and here's why we think that that would be a pretty neat application of ml in that particular space or even possibly doing auto fixing or you know coding for you just like these other things can code from words maybe we can figure out a way to make a security problem go away because we coded for words or whatever the case may be there's just so many applications in almost every industry that can be augmented or enhanced through ml yeah. But, the, but the, I guess the key is to make that easier for the layman to use. That's the key. You don't want to make it so it's harder. You want to make it so it makes everybody's job easier. It's like those stupid things you fill out when you order food and then you put in your, well, for us, it's a zip code, but it doesn't fill in the state. Like, really? Do you want me to fill in the state? Who coded this? Computers are supposed to make our life easier, not harder, people.
Well, maybe it just wanted to be stateless. It's horrible. It's so, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> but it's like that. Or when you go into, you know, you type in your, your phone number and you have to put in the area code. And it's like, really? I'm on a phone. You don't know where I am? For real? <laughs> well, well yeah, you know, that one I could sort of see, right? Because I, I'm always surprised here living in SoCal when I have to dial like an area code for a number in, say, Iowa but I know that that person lives a couple towns over and it's just because they kept the mobile number, you know, that they, that they moved with and that kind of thing. So it's, it's not always a, making a excuses, Rob. No excuses. <laughs> Computers need to make your life easier. And I don't know why more of us aren't embracing that concept by us. I mean, get off my lawn, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so infuriating to see stuff that just makes work harder. I mean, it's it's not like you know our space is any innocent from that at all. It, it is what right. it is. You got to do what you can do while you can do it. Um, but as we're you know thinking about solving problems of the future, making our life easier should be at the top of the list. Like, look at the recommenders that exist, you know, on your your streaming services or uh, in your shopping services. We're not going to name names or anything, but they've gotten remarkably good at figuring out the kinds of things you might be interested in. Uh, there's yeah. no reason at all why that can't be applied to so many other problems. Mm-hmm. Exciting times, exciting Very times. True. Yeah. Well, look, thank you for that insight. We, we, we must ask Rick some of his thoughts on AI as well. Absolutely. Well, hey, friends. Our guest today is Rick Regera, and Rick is a seasoned enterprise and executive agile coach and trainer. He's a consultant, project manager, and IT professional. He's got a long list of certifications that include things like the CEC, the AKT, PMP, the Six Sigma Greenbelt, PSM, and a handful of others. Um, but we really love Rick because he's very experienced in leading and mentoring successful organizations through agile transformations, um, and particularly for several Fortune 500 companies. So he's an expert in building really high-performing organizations based on strong values and best practices and leading technologies, and he helps folks be able to thrive in today's rapidly changing marketplace. Um, they create sustainable systems to deliver products faster with quality through positive culture changes, something we really care about and a productive self-managed environment. Um, he's a big fan of giving back to the community. He's the national keynote speaker. Um, he's a president of the South Florida Agile Association and he's Agile Executive Coach for the South Florida PMI chapter. So we're super excited to have you with us today, Rick. Uh, how are things going? And you know, I had a chance to meet you back in Miami a couple months ago at the Agile International Conference. So. How was it getting everybody back together and being able to kind of gather in person and have some fun together? I think it was a challenge. I mean, re remember, we started this around six months prior. So there was still a lot of risk in actually holding an event like this. But the team actually came together and, and pulled this off. So the experience, as, as you noticed, Rob, was really a, a family uh, type of experience, yeah. right? We had a lot of people there supporting us in the back end from a, uh, a sponsorship perspective, like you guys did with ACL. That was really, really key to make sure we kicked this off properly. So I felt, I felt amongst family, but it was weird because suddenly you're seeing people that you, you've only seen via video. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're here face to face. And I even tried to make a joke in the beginning yeah. of the conference by, by holding up a, a, uh, like a, something blocking their, 
your body and saying, that's all I recognize from you is your face. Exactly. You know? I don't know if they got the joke, but I think, again, it was a nice, spirited um, conference. A lot of people there supporting us and really, really just, just some, and we also took precaution. So you yeah. notice it was open space, yep. right? Where we yeah. had a lot of room, a lot of space. For everyone to make sure that they're mingling and, and communicating in a safe way. Yeah. And so I love the theme of it too. You guys, I think, settled on a theme of survive and thrive, which was awesome. So how did how did you come up with that? And and what did you think were were people's uh, reactions to that? Uh that that's 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 been a, a very um kind of cemented, you know title to that right we we are all going through that that struggle right and everything in life and and adapting and that we're able to overcome that but not just overcome but now get to the next level right where we're actually thriving and that's the key we are survivors we are people that 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 come together the community that we've set up internationally has been an amazing like we thought okay we're challenged now we had a lot of face-to-face interactions now what do we do and we had to adapt but it opened the door, Rob, to an international community, hmm. right? Where now we're able to really spread the world, you know, the words worldwide. It's a really, really humbling, humbling experience. Did you see a difference between companies that were successfully using Agile versus those that didn't as the pandemic as that pandemic went on? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can tell. The companies that really struggled with Agile as soon as the, the remote, everyone has to work remotely. You know that there's statistics that show, and I don't know if you guys read that, that there was a lot of additional software that was added out there to monitor people. Yeah. During Immediately, there was a flood of software that people were like, well, let's monitor. Let's make sure that they're doing their work. Let's make sure that they're on screen. That was pretty interesting. While the people that actually had that cultural, remember, this is where people get confused. Agile is not just a process. If you're thinking about process implementing Agile, you're way off. It's the whole mindset. It's the whole cultural evolution. So you that trust, that healthy conflict that we're all working together. Think about that now remotely. Now I'm able to trust somebody mm-hmm. that they're not just, you know, at home taking care of everything else but work. In fact, again, back to statistics, we know that people are working so much more from home than they've ever have at the office. And that's my opinion. I don't know how everyone else feels. Some people might be differently, but I wake up thinking about work. I sometimes spend really late nights. Mm-hmm. So now we're faced with now, how do we get people to relax? Yeah. Because we can yeah, that balance. stop working. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. stop it. Yeah, and that's in counting. Uh, that's including all the people that hooked up, you know, mouses to fans and all that, so that they didn't have to worry about that monitoring <laughs> software. I mean, I'm just saying, you start monitoring people, they're gonna find ways around it. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, for me, it's it was a huge difference, like the interruptions and the constant, constant questions and all that that usually comes your way. Oh it just it goes away, and you can focus on what you need to do. It's crazy the amount of different where uh, difference that it is now. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, do, you think, do you think, Rick, that some of the there's some things that have been learned from the, you know, the the lockdowns and pandemics that, that's going to change the way agile works going forward? So we have this whole thing called face to face interaction, right? You guys all know, it, right? This whole face to face interaction is so important because we get to read a lot, we get to sense, we get to really that personal connection. 
But I'm going to give you something else. Technology plays a big part in this. I'm going to call it another sense, technology sense, if you want to call that, where you're now, how good are you in using the tools you need to connect to people remotely? Mm. Right? How good are you? Because that can also, for example, we use some interactive tools, whether it's mural, whether it's what, to try to mimic a lot of the conversation that you would have on a whiteboard. Right. But now with these remote tools, you can actually have even more conversation happening, even more interaction that you couldn't do in a regular office space. So it's b- being able to adapt to some of these tools to be able to use that, that next set. Mm-hmm. Maybe we got to coin it something. I don't know what you guys want, or maybe it's out there already coined. But what is that technology sense that makes you interact at the next level? Right. You know, I wonder if that's where all of the kind of metaverse type stuff is going. You know, those you're starting to see these sort of uh, three dimensional meeting experiences in virtual space. And, um, you know, it's funny being in the infosec side, right? There's all of the privacy concerns and all of the you know, data security concerns and that kind of thing. We've got to, in fact, we talked to somebody, uh, Kavya Perlman, um, last season about the the extended reality or the XR space, right, that's in there and all of the, the things. Um, you know, what we saw with the, the monitoring, right, was a lot of the InfoSec community kind of pushed back on it and, and said, you know, because they were getting asked to spy on their colleagues, if you will, or trying to track stuff and they're like hey we we don't want to be involved in that that's not really what we're here for so you're right it's a really interesting dynamic on the human side of all of this that that is making it work and i think to your point that when the culture is healthy right and those organizations that had an an adaptive agile culture that was working they were able to very quickly pivot and see success and the ones that didn't clearly you know struggled with the trust factor so that's fascinating uh, absolutely. And then and then they were trying to rush them back to the office as well. Yeah. And that also created some interesting scenarios. And then there's this whole, I'm leaving, I'm no longer going back, right? <laughs> there's a lot of individuals out there saying, I'm sorry, if not, I'm, if not, if I can't work remotely, I might re- want to retire. Yeah. I might want to do this because they actually experienced something that was really special. Like I could tell you, even from a family perspective, I've never been closer to my kids mm. and my family as I've been these years. And I know we all take this as a negative, negative, and we, we do you know, appreciate, but it's, it's also an amazing blessing to be able to have that opportunity. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's remar- remarkable for me. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a, a worldwide phenomenon, the, the great refresh where people are you know, moving because they're looking for better quality of, of job more, more than anything, you know, it's like it's, as opposed to just going up looking for more money, it's it's like no, I want better life, work life balance. You know. Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. It used to be you'd move to a city to find work, and now you're moving to the suburbs because you already have work and you want you're looking for life. It's the weirdest thing. I love it. Think about it. Some people drive an hour to work. Yeah, it's and an hour you can't back, do it. and then you're still trying to manage your whole life and your whole family relationships. It's a tough call. So yeah. But I understand the security part of it. I understand all that, that, that we need to make sure we secure our data. But I also know that there, there, there's been very tight security and only because of this, this opportunity to now fully remote do they think outside the box. 
Like there's a lot of people that we were really tight. Some organizations, you couldn't even get into the office. You couldn't, that you had to bring your own computer. And then suddenly it changed. (laughs) Like, hello, maybe you could have done that before, but you weren't innovative enough or you weren't open to that learning. Right. So sometimes these, these difficult moments get the best out of us or where it allows us to innovate and create new stuff. Yep. Right. Cause think about it. We're a global world guys, whether we like it or not, this has been a lot. And sooner or later we'll be in Mars and there'll be interaction from there. <laughs> there right. I, mean, I don't want to push you guys to Mars yet. But Can you yeah, imagine we don't have a long enough lag. <laughs> You say hi and you wait 30 minutes for the high back. <laughs> Those are going to be some brutal weather. 30 minutes. It's like three days. <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> you imagine, you want to watch your ellipses that long in the messages, oh. right? <laughs> hey, how you doing? I'm going to go get some coffee. And you got to wait 30 minutes for what they're going to say in response. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> this is not going to work, guys. Yeah. No. <laughs> but it's funny, right? Because, uh, you know, BYOD and IO, you know, the Internet of Things space, right, suddenly turned into survive and thrive, right? You had to adopt it. So uh, that, is, that is pretty amazing. So, so we, 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 the, one of the things that we're doing in our podcast this season, we're talking about 10 different business trends that, that we see. And the one, the one that we talked about on this episode is, is around artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, and how that's changing and how that needs to be a little bit more accessible to people so it's not just like a, a science experiment. Are you seeing in the agile space the use of things like that that are improving the way people are working? So absolutely. And since I work in technology, that is a, a very important factor that everyone's involved with. Um, keep in mind that anything that can be automated is going to be automated. So if you've got a boring job, you better go looking for another job, right? Because that's going to happen, right? Where we're sooner or later, we're going to get a lot of these automations, you know, taking place of a lot of the things that we do that are, you know, very tedious, right? So I, I do see that. So the question is, where are we then, right? Once these things do take place, how, what, what, what skill sets, what capabilities? And the answer to that is connection, people mm-hmm. connection. Right. That's what makes us different. Right. So how many of us do really have that, you know, emotional intelligence, the ability to understand others, the ability to relate to others once a lot of this other stuff, you know, kind of kind of moves away. I think there's going to be some interesting challenges there. And that's in agile. When we do a transformation, a lot of the stuff that we're doing is and from a leadership perspective is getting leaders to think a little different. Right. To think from a from a how do I support you to to grow you as a as a and develop you rather than let me tell you what to do. Let me give you the answers. Right. So that's really another level of of engagement that we look for in in helping some of these agile transformations. One of the one of the questions I've always had and, and have always struggled with myself is how do you sell developers on the agile transformation when it just turns into agile fall if we're being honest for say legacy apps you know where you're building and you're doing your sprint reviews every week or two weeks but you're not really releasing it except for once every quarter or something like that how do you sell to developers that this is an important methodology and this is something that they need to care about right so so you just put a scenario there for first you put some if statements there yeah. for a developer since we we want to talk to developers 
So yeah, if they don't have the ability to release, that is an uncomfortable conversation, right? Because the whole idea is that you can get feedback on the work that you do, right? So that's going to be key. But there's other ways of delivering and, and decoupling your work so that you can still go through the pipeline. You can still make it easier um, to deliver. Um, and when a lot of developers that I talk to, it's more like when something's painful, do it more often. Right. That sounds weird. <laughs> Something's painful. Do it more often. That way, I hate to say this. Some developers might be lazy. So if you make it difficult on them, they will find a way. They will be creative enough to kind of figure out what is it that we need to do to kind of decouple this and make it, mm. um, you know, in a way that we can deliver. But there's a lot more than just the delivery part of it. Right. There's this whole idea of working as a team. Right having T-shaped skills, being able to understand what the business is requesting. Instead of having that silo, I'm only going to work on this part of security. I'm only going to work on this part. Imagine you being able to visualize the full product so that you could provide inputs early. You're smart people, guys. Developers are amazing. When you get them to understand the business, now they're telling the business what to do. Right? So how do you get them to think outside of just they're solutioning, right? That there's more to that, that conversation. And I think it just creates an amazing synergy for them to kind of work together and figure it out. And it's all about continuous improvement, guys. It, there's no one has all the right answers. It's more like, how do we unite together to figure this? So, so you said one area, which is delivery, got you. But the idea of them kind of uniting technologies and, and understanding that they're now their sphere of influ influence is not just on their widget that they're good at, that now that they can contribute to the bigger picture, I think it's great. And they love challenges, so let's challenge them, right? So that's an area. That's an area of, of, of support that you can do for them. But I, I, I've always seen developers really gun-ho about, about doing Agile. I've never really seen developers, in a sense, not enjoy that thing. What they don't enjoy is all the, you need to report this and you need to give a status reports and you need to tell them this. Yeah, if you put all this overhead on them, then they're not. But when you say, I need you to solve problems and, and figure it out and work through it and you're empowered, that's a great feeling. That's a great feeling from there, right? Yeah, so yeah. We, we approach things, I, I guess uh, there's huge emphasis on security. Um, and one of the things that I've always found a little bit lacking in a lot of the, you know, development practices is a lack of security being embedded in it. Are you seeing that change considerably as well within the way that Agile is being adapted to? So DevSecOps, right? That whole, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, luckily I've been in very high-end shops and that was our first dilemma we needed to deal with. Hmm. Like, hey, You've got security here. Normally, security starts on their own. They, they possibly do some Kanban, right, mm. where they're able to at least measure the requests that come in. They're doing penetration tests. They're doing all kinds of great stuff over there, making sure. The idea behind this is, well, can we have one person from security be embedded in one of the teams? Is that even possible? Yep. Your first thing is probably going to say, no way. We don't have enough security people. Okay, mm. let's, let's face that. We don't have enough security people to put them in each of the teams. Well, the next step to that, can each, can a security person, at least one person be dedicated so that you see a friendly face, 
to that environment. Okay, that's good. Now we got one person who we constantly go to, they know our system well, and the requests go in and out pretty quickly. Okay, that's the third phase of that to really get the next level is, well, can this security people start teaching some of the skill sets that they have to that development team? Why is it that you need me 80% of the time? Can you only need me 20% of the time if I show you certain skill sets? But I can tell you, some people are very cautious about their area. They're very guarded. No, only I do this. I am the one with certifications for this, 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 right? So there's gotta be another way of interacting and working together where we're building trust that other people can support us in this area. So that, so back to the trend, absolutely, this has to be a trend. We have to, because it's all about moving through the pipeline, right? How long does it take you to do one line of code through that, through that pipeline? If you have to move one line of code, then it's got to go through a penetration test. Then it's got to go through a whole regression test. Then it's got to go through several different environments. Then it manually has to do, 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 do. and then three months later, you finally can get it out to production. That's a problem. Yep. Right. So measuring that and having that as a baseline and making sure securities. So we know agile, agile has planning and we showcase planning where you can participate in the planning. Let's not wait to pass the baton on to you at the end and then blame, you know, Oh, it's back and forth. It's let's get them early. Let's get them to review. Let's get them to give us some insights on it. And now we're working together to get to that finish line. And, and, and but he's, Rick is, is exactly right. I mean, this we, we talk about this idea of security champions or some places yeah. they'll call it security ninjas, right? But when you can get them involved early and often, then it's great success for everybody, right? And we've I think security has figured out that developers are not going to come running over to the SOC, right? The Secure Operations Center and ask questions. It's security's got to come out and fit into that world because of the pace of change. Um, so if you do want uh, some great examples of this, one of the best ones I'm aware of is Jennifer Sethnewski at, at Target, who has put together a really cool Security Ninja program. Um, and she's actually talking at RSA this year around the psychology and the technology of doing that. So the whole sort of mindset in building security champions and putting that in. So great example. And and of course, we're all familiar with Target. We shop there and everything. So huge organization that's been able to figure out how to get security as part of the discussion. So I love what you're talking about there, Rick, with, with you know, kind of having that teaming. Um, I'm curious with, with kind of this, this space, and, and I realize this may be a, a little bit of an oddball question, but something you mentioned kind of struck me here. Um, there's a lot of conversation today around things like value stream mapping and value stream management. And, and we're seeing that interest in data kind of coming in and workflow through the pipeline. Are you seeing kind of that intersection with sort of value stream management and agile and, and those things working together in terms of how that release pipeline is getting optimized? So, so that is a, uh, an outside question, but I'll, I'll give you my, my take. So value stream mapping is crucial in the agile world, right? We call it system thinking, where we're able to see the full value of, of it coming down through the pipeline. So for us, it's something a, a must have. Um, one of the things that I want to make sure we understand is that, and, and, and I want to add to that, the way we plan, uh, we also have an architectural runway. 
right? So, so, so remember, security plays a very key role in that as well. So understanding what that value stream looks like, but also providing some guidelines to saying, this is where we're headed so that you guys can all be in sync as you're developing new features to your customers and all that, you're now aligned to the work that everyone's doing. So I think those, those are key things. I think what I find difficulty is, is the sharing, mm. the sharing of, 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 of team members and how difficult it is for someone to, to multitask and get really discouraged because you're, you're running from one to another, run to another. So how we, we get them to be more aligned and, 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 and more hyper-focused, I think is something that Agile also preaches. Chris loves to multitask. Oh. <laughs> you know, Chris doesn't. No. <laughs> no developer likes to multitask. It's so difficult to load up what you got to fix in your mind. Oh. So, so let me ask you guys a question. Yeah, how about that? Absolutely. Um, so what are applications, what are, what are we doing from an application perspective that's going to help these teams in the future? Like what type of applications and what, what do you see as the future application that we should be alerted to, to say, Hey, this is going to help, help security, help the teams kind of work together. It, the, the biggest thing that I'm personally interested in, in this space, right? And I, and it's largely because I have um, young adult children. So I have a daughter that just graduated college, a son that's a year removed from high school. Um, and it's the intersection of data privacy and security coming together. And so what I'm seeing from an application perspective is a ton of customization, around you know how these apps personally interact they understand tens and and tendencies and and looking at interests and that kind of thing but doing that in a way that maintains data integrity and the security behind it and, and i'll give you kind of a very simple example right a couple of years ago my son uh, first job right his he sets up direct deposit with his employer first paycheck goes through fine in the bank nothing to worry about but the second one, um, they had a little glitch in the system and they issued paper checks instead. And so when I picked him up from work on the way home, he pulls out his phone and he wants to start taking pictures and depositing it as we're driving around. And I, and I stopped him and I said, hey, at least wait till we get home and we're on a network where I can put the VPN on and you, you can do it. But, but he had assumed that because the bank had a mobile app, that everything was fine and secure and that they were doing all the right things on the back end. And we know as hard as they try to, that that's not always the case, right? And the way networks work and all of that kind of stuff. And so the amount of trust that younger generations put into these applications and how easily they share stuff has created this massive need for privacy. And so I, I live in Southern California, right? So we had the CCPA. Um, we decided that wasn't good enough, so then we made the CRPA. And so what I like to tell people now is that if you do a good job with the CCPA and the CRPA, you avoid the CRAP. And so that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> you kind of get it, you know, get it all together. Um, but that's where I think a lot of the application trends are going right now and figuring out how do we handle that data and do it in a secure fashion mm -hmm. and deal with you know, Colin in Ireland having to deal with GDPR and me in California dealing with CCPA and Chris in New Hampshire dealing with, 
thing to for your day, you know, <laughs> right? You know, and so, so I think that's that's one of them for sure. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, we 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 put a from a security point of view, we're trying to get things as left as possible, and one of the ways that we've sort of innovated around that is by creating like community editions of our tooling. We have a we have a product called Code Suite, which you know sits within the ID, works with the developer as they're coding, but effectively is an education tool, and you know is educating them on what might happen without any oversight. So it's not necessarily got this. Oh, you just created a vulnerability, and someone's going to sort of slap you on the wrist for it. It's it's there to help educate and bring levels of awareness. And there's a lot more emphasis on that sort of thing. So like you said, moving things away from the, the security being at the end, you know, it's, you know, um, you know, that's that's an app that we always had, but it's it's just using it in a different way and, and trying to connect that differently. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're seeing a lot. I don't know how familiar you are with threat modeling, if that's a, a term that's come up, but um, it's basically that practice of sort of mapping out what could go wrong with an application. And it's traditionally been done by the security professionals. Um, but what we're seeing is a big trend towards pushing, you know, kind of pushing that left as well, getting developers involved in the threat modeling, which I think is great, right? You're sitting there thinking, what could go wrong with my app while I'm making it? Then suddenly that influences how you code. So I think that's mm -hmm. going to continue to be a, a big trend in the space. Yeah, the biggest challenge for developers is nothing can go wrong with my app. I built it. It's great. <laughs> um, but they don't think about, you know, bad data that comes in. There's there's a, a meme I saw where, you know, the developer makes his little bar app and the customer comes in, orders 99 beers, orders one beer, orders negative one beer, <laughs> orders zero beer, beers, exactly. orders A, B, C, D, E, app crashes or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> or they just turn on the light and the thing blows up or something silly that you never thought to test. So. Yeah, as developers, we need to be cognizant that we'll never think of every way bad data can come in. And teaching zero trust, I think, is the biggest, biggest shift in, in mind that I had. Like, you can't trust the database. You cannot trust the web. Those are obvious. But you also can't trust the file system. You can't trust the environment. You can't trust the memory on your machine kind of thing. Literally, everything cannot be trusted uh, because bad stuff can get in and do bad stuff. So for, for me, anyway, to, to get to this little part that you're talking about, it's more of a mindset shift than it is a tool or an application or anything like that. Because I'll tell you right now, with the apps I use, if you want information from me and it's gonna make my life a thousand times easier, here, here it is, have a nice day, do with it what you will, I don't care. I just want my life to be better. And I guarantee you most young people are feeling the same way because it's ubiquitous now. You know, I type in a couple of characters in my, my favorite little map app and it knows exactly where I wanna go. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a huge lifesaver. That was cool. I'm glad you mentioned young people there, uh, actually, because the last question I wanted to ask about um, Rick with you was was really on the next generation. And I kind of picked up, you know, from the conference that we were at, that this is something you care about as well. I was really appreciative to see those things kind of in the agenda and talking to the next generation and mentoring and that kind of thing. So um, in the session Rick Connolly did, right, on remote work and coming out of the pandemic and recruitment and retention. So I'm curious on, on two quick fronts, right? One, what would you say to students, you know, younger folks who are coming into this space, key skills to develop and things to, to focus on? 
And then to organizations, how do they kind of attract and retain and sort of keep their talent in this space? What's what's interesting with, with new, you know, people coming into this field, right? They're right out of college. They're going through this. I can tell you it's pretty shocking when they haven't seen the waterfall uh, approach. <laughs> it, it's like I just had a training this weekend, and I had somebody tell me, waterfall what is that like our, our organization we don't even talk about that so that's what we're going to have to change we're going to have to just as instructors we're going to have to make sure that we understand that they have a different look a mm. different feel of of how they're coming in here um i i would always go into emotional intelligence i would always go into how do you read how do you make sure you validate your hypothesis how do you stay humble how do you make sure that everyone's involved because some of them are gun ho they want to go at 100 miles per hour, yeah. but they don't pause to kind of help and support others, right? So I think uh, patience that we've learned from our gray hairs and, you know. <laughs> what are you trying uh, to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody, luckily it's a podcast. Nobody sees some of the gray hair. <laughs> um, but um, I think that patience for a lot of these, um, you know, new students, new people going into the field is, is going to be crucial for them. I think they also jump around a lot. Yeah. I think I've seen a lot of statistics where they're jumping from one job to another to another job. So that's going to create an interesting dilemma for us as well, because now we're here culturally setting things up. Now we're going to have to adapt very quickly to onboarding people. So that's going to be the biggest challenge we have. How fast do you onboard people um, to fit into the system that you're in mm. and be able to be productive, effective, and, and work through it? Uh, and then and, what and, are the, and potentially onboard them remotely as well, which yeah. has been amazing. That onboarding has been amazing, you know, trying to get them to onboard remotely. But again, those are, those are challenges from that standpoint. Now back to an, an organizational perspective and the whole challenges we have as an organization that that's, that's a tough call because a lot of these organizations, the, the people at the, at the top, do understand waterfall, do remember all that stuff, and maybe do act a certain way that maybe is not the next level of leadership, right? So how do we get them to interact in the right way, right? So we have a lot of constant feedback loops, constant evaluation so that you can actually see how people are feeling so that you can tie in the two cultures, right? Because that's as a coach, that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to tie in the culture from the top and the culture to the teams coming in. And some of that is not that easy. One of the things that I use from a, from a coaching perspective is making sure that it's not about pointing fingers. Right. Because if you've ever had retrospects and if you guys have ever run small retrospects, you'll see the first thing everybody cries about. My problem is because of everybody else. I'm awesome. <laughs> we're security. We're infrastructure. We're the, day, the developers. We're awesome. It's all these other people that the problem. You're never going to make ground on that one. Right. That's never going to get you to where you need to get. So how do we get that common ground where they can kind of align to? That's that's really key for us as coaches to make sure we're doing that. That blameless postmortem is huge. Yeah, the victim mentality. Yep. You know, everything is everybody else's fault. Yes. <laughs> so so just to let you know a little bit about what we're doing for next stuff, right? So we, we are doing a future conference, which again, we're going to invite you uh, for the yearly conference, but we're also going to be doing monthly events to make sure that we get. So we've been giving back to the community on top of the work that we do with clients, 
know, that's, that's awesome and, and, and pays the bill. You got to give that. But we're also about giving. And I told you about the, the weekly events we have on Wednesday where we're constantly presenting speakers to speak on all kinds of topics. And then on Saturday, we have a, a personal coaching sessions where we divide into breakout rooms and we provide coaching to people that are, that are kind of figuring things out, right? Whether you're in the beginner, intermediate or advanced, or whether you even want to develop an application. How many times do you hear, I don't have the right experience. I can't get the right experience. Well, guess what? In these hmm. sessions, we actually have them form an agile team and work together. Oh, They're brilliant. developing applications. They developed an agile application. And now they're learning and giving back to the community. And that's a free application we're giving so that people learn agile. So that's what we've been doing behind the scenes, which to me, it's, it's humbling, right? It's, it's, it's what we live for being, you know, a part of something that that's bigger than yourself. Right. Awesome. So I think that that has been a great, and we've been doing this for a while now since 2013, we started, but because of the epidemic, you know, again, it's been more international. Right. So that's what's happening you know, in the future. So, so if people live in the South Florida area or they happen to be in South Florida and want to come and meet up with one of these, what's the best way for them to find out about it? So luckily they don't even have to be in the, in, in the South Florida area. We're going to have these events, of course, that are face to face in the, but it's all remote. So we're oh, cool. running these sessions all remotely. You go in there and you go in breakout sessions and then you kind of go through that. But I love that yearly event. That yearly event is face-to-face, -face, which is really, really nice because you get to actually see some of the people that you haven't seen. And I think it brings the community together. So that's going to be a big one, guys. We're looking for 1,000 people this year. So that's really a great event. When, when, when is that? Do you have a date for that? We're, normally, we do it in March. March is okay. normally our, our date. Uh, so 2023 in March, we're just looking for the right venue right now. Excellent, excellent. Well, we'll look out for that, and we'll 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 definitely add lots of links to what you've been talking about in, in the in the you want. Um, so I know Rick, you've got a website out there for Agile Transformation Coaches, right? And then I know you're on LinkedIn. Is that kind of the best way to people to contact you if they have questions and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Please go join our website, and you can take a look at that. And we do trainings, we do consulting, coaching, and all that for for organizations. Whatever we could do to help, that that would be awesome. 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 It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. We'd love talking to you today, man. Thank you so much for taking the time and taking us through. I mean, we could talk about this forever and probably have you back on again to talk about some of the newer trends and tendencies that we're seeing in Agile and, you know, things like that and uh, stuff we, can, we didn't get to today. But, man, thank you so much. But, but I also want to thank you yeah. guys. Like, you guys made it possible. Remember, I'm reaching out for, for organizations that want to support and give back, and you guys were one of them. So I really, really thank you for, for the, the, the influence being there with us. That was really good seeing you guys face-to-face, -face, which was nice. Yeah. And I think it's, it's just a partnership that we want to keep building and, and growing on. So we're really appreciative to everything that you guys have done. Great job. Awesome, man. Well, it was an honor to be there, man. It was very cool. Thank you very much, Rick. Appreciate it. All right. Yeah. All in, Chris. Thanks, guys. That was yeah. awesome. Yeah. So with that, well, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Rob. Wonderful as always. <laughs>
Yes. Incredibly dapper. Incredibly, Incredibly dapper. dapper. I feel so dapper today. Yes. <laughs> it's weird that he would call me that. Yep. <laughs> as long as you're not being called a wheelbarrow. Yeah. <laughs> or a lantern. Yes. <laughs> Which is my favorite so far. Yes. Which one is lantern? <laughs> the lantern is pretty good. To be carried in some way. It <laughs> sounds positive, but it does. Look at the the light for you. No, you don't. No, you no. don't. <laughs> you don't want to be a lantern. Come this way. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You bet.